Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. And today we are joined by Jeanette Ng. Hello, Jeanette. Hello. Jeanette is the author of Under the Pendulum Sum, and today we are going to be talking about religion and fantasy. Um, am I right in thinking, Jeanette, that you have um, some background in um, a religious degree, is that right? Uh, no, I, I did medieval and renaissance studies and <clears throat> English literature and history So um, before that. So it's so it, I, I sort of did religion because I, I had a minor specialisation in um, medieval religious figures, female religious figures in, to an extent. Um, um, Christina Marquet, Hildegard Bingen, you know, that sort of thing. But um, I was I was actually more of a Old Norse specialist in the end of the day. And so what made... figures, lots of Robin Hood. <laughs> so with that in mind, what made you want to focus on Christianity in particular in Under the Pendulum Sun? Um, I, I told the story before, so um, apologies to people who have heard it. Um, I was in the library and I picked up a book of old Victorian missionary manuals. Um, and I was sort of flicking through it because I was bored. Um, this was about a decade ago, back when I was procrastinating from possibly writing a essay on Paradise Lost or something. And... Um, and it all just kind of came together in my head because of some of the incredibly racist and imperialist language in it. Um, and I started wanting to test these missionaries. I wanted them to be uh, facing people and things and cultures that were as other as they described in the book. Because they, I mean, from their point of view, it sounded like they were meeting people who weren't even human. Um, which, of course, they are. Um, people who live in Southeast Asia and so forth, are human. Um, but then I thought, well, what if what if they were encountering people who aren't? And would that be more interesting? Like, uh, that crucible of the faith, how would it be tested? And, um, yeah, I, they thought that would be interesting. And my, um, my gran is, um, I'm told, uh, was a, was an early convert to, to Christianity and um, did missionizing herself back in the day. So there was, there's some connections there. Um, I, I wandered around Macau's kind of um, missionary old buildings and things and looked at their artifacts and that, that's all quite fascinating um, but that, that sort of came later The Spark was just a, a, an old book in a bored undergrad <laughs> Now Christianity has made an appearance in recent fantasy novels such as yours and The Prince of Thorns to name but two that came to my head Is this a new trend we're seeing or has it always been done and we've just not noticed it before? I think it, it always has been done. I mean, um, if if you take Birth of Modern Fantasy as Tolkien, then contemporary to him is, you know, um, Narnia and C.S. Um, and um, C.S. Lewis and all that kind of allegorical faith. Um, but people like to talk about it obliquely. I think it's possibly the whole Second World thing that we don't necessarily want to take our. Uh, take what are perceived to be modern values into it so christianity people some people at least find very jarring um but but i mean um like the sparrow for example won a won a hugo one year i'm i'm scraping the barrel here and obviously alec the bodard has um has fallen um fallen angels um in paris um there's a there's a strong vein of using christian mythology well, I think, like you said earlier, that there is a lot of Christian mythology sort of in, you know, contemporary or even mm. recent recent past. But if you think about something like C.S. Lewis that you were talking about there, um, 
then like you say it's very allegorical and they've kind of made it christian but kind of shied away from examining it whereas what i really liked about your novel was how it just it had two completely contrasting faith isn't quite the right word because i wouldn't say that the fae the fae are religious or a faith but if you read a lot of folklore like i do you do realize that there's an awful <laughs> lot of mythos and and rituals of their own around it and you've kind of just got the two of them and thrown them together in like a beautiful color splash and um and made it and made it that way and i just it's not something i've come across before but i appreciate i might not be as widely read as some of our audiences or or even you which is why i asked the question i think i think there are a lot of books that i think christianity because it's the default creeps into a lot of settings either as sort of serial numbers filed off type thing or or even um Oh, I think Jim C. Hines, for example, I like his um, um, fairy tale um, princesses series. You know, they're they're in Fairyland, there are fairies, um, and you know, it's Cinderella teams up with um, Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, and you know, fights things. It's, you know, it's a lot of fun, and and in this almost um, in this description, halfway through one of the books, it mentions a church, and then literally never again. Like it mentions a church and a cross and. And there's no other mention of religion in it that I could remember at all. And it really stuck out to me that sometimes because it's the default, people just, it exists like people going to the toilet or um, what they ate for breakfast. It's not something that gets examined. Yeah, I, I have something to add there because I recently saw um, The Last Jedi. and um, well, No spoilers, no spoilers. <laughs> I'm not going to have a spoiler, but... There's one line in it where a character says, Godspeed, rebels. Oh, yes. I, saw, I noticed that. Yes. It was an absolute clangor because nobody else in any of the Star Wars things ever really mentioned God. Yes, you know, Jediism, you know, it's, it's considered a religion, but they never talk about God. And it was such a bizarre thing to hear in that world when, you know, and it just. Angels exist, though. What in in Star Wars? I've seen the oh. I've seen the Phantom Menace. There are angels. <laughs> oh, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah. Anakin, Anakin very famously does, says yeah. Um, um, yeah, and then it got like retconned. Yeah, it got retconned that angels don't mean angels. They mean this very specific um, race creature, of very yeah. attractive aliens who 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 are called slash nicknamed angels. It's just yeah. Um, but I guess that's another example. It's one of these clangers that stands out when people, but people put it in there because and they don't think twice about it when actually when you're in the world, it's just uh, well, ugh. it's probably just how baked into English it is because it's been around for so long. So, like, um, I was writing um, an other world setting a while back, um, and I, I wanted, you know, I wanted chrism, which is um, just as in, like, anointing oil. And then, but the problem is chrism comes from Christ, the anointed one, or they, they come from the same root, rather. And it sounds very Christian, even though literally the root of it is just simply to be anointed. And it's like, well, is, is this too religious um or even a crusade a crusade comes from you know taking the cross and so forth um if i call um my paladins or whatever going to the north to fight bar barbarians of a different faith but they're not christian um neither of them are should i call it a crusade or is it not a crusade because there is no cross and if so what word should i use and i think godspeed and some of the more obvious ones people know to avoid but depending on how much etymology you know it, it can be jarring further than that 
Mm -hmm. That's really, really interesting um, because you see it a lot in fantasy books where people swear, um, you know, and they say, like, you know, I mean, personally, when I've been writing, it's, it's sometimes a struggle when you just want to say, oh, for God's sake, but there's there's not really an alternative um, saying without it. You know, you have to make up something really, really stupid. And if you don't have a re- like an overt religion in your book, like I don't, um, mm. it's uh, it's quite a struggle to come up with something that sounds I- as genuine as for God's sake. And I think that it also comes across when sometimes you're doing something like, oh, um, this 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 culture is much more sex positive, then you can't say, you, you might not say fuck the same way. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I said fuck. Or like, <laughs> we're swear on this oh, podcast? yeah, oh, yeah. Everything. Okay, that's fine. Then. Or, or like bloody, like you don't say, you know, bloody comes from, um, and I didn't know that for ages and ages and ruddy and all those kind of like derived swear words because um, it's from blood of Christ. Uh, and... And I end up using it because I'm then hoping no one notices, or I use it because oh well, there's there's blood in this fictional religion, so we'll we'll pretend it's about you know a different you know Odin's blood, um, because he gets sacrificed too. There's blood involved. It'll be fine. Um, but I, I think that 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 it's an inherent limitation of the way language has evolved and the history of our language. Mm-hmm. So thinking about obviously how wide and deep Christianity goes without, without a lot of people really realising it, do you think that's the reason that Christianity holds interest for people? Because they are less familiar with the denser and weirder aspects of it and how obscure and varied the theology can be. And the fact that, for example, bloody comes from the idea of Christ and blood, but could also be related to Odin. I mean, do you think that's why they kind of go for Christianity? I think so. I think there's there's some people who are really rediscovering some of that. And I think there's also the taboo of... I mean, certainly I'm drawn to that, of, of um, playing with something that is, because it is still, to an extent, a, well, very much so, a living faith for a lot of people. Um, there is that act of transgression in a way that um, insulting Odin, um, for there are pagans, there are fewer of them, there, there just isn't that same charge of criticising something that is ubiquitous. Um, and destroying the idea implicitly that, um, the Christianity of today is the same as the Christianity of 2,000 years ago. Um, and that's that can be quite powerful because it draws its power from the idea that it is unchanging and it is this institution and it goes back for that long. Well, it's interesting you said living faith because I was just about to say that the thing about Christianity is if you look at the Christian text and the Christian ideals and rituals and, and practices now mm. compared to 100 years ago, 200 years ago, a 1,000 years ago, they're so radically different. It's undergone so many changes. So what made you want to put um, Under a Pendulum Sum in the particular time period where it was? Was it kind of you like the time period and you just kind of adapted Christianity around it? Or was it, I really like that branch of Christianity and where it's going, so I'll put it in that kind of era? Well, it, it came literally from the missionary manual I was holding. I was like, this guy, this sh- this guy should go back. And so like in a very, very early draft, um, Lown is is sort of like an XP of um, William Matheson or like someone like like a, an actual living missionary. And then I thought, well, that might be a bit much. Um, that guy might have you know living descendants or something. Um, <laughs> and well, and and also, um, but but the Victorian idea also came from. Um, I I faffed around failing to finish writing that novel for about a decade, and then um, it was thinking about the gothic after watching Crimson Peak or something um, and thinking about how to do something like the gothic in a fantasy setting where you needed to unnerve people and have people feel 
uneasy, but what you do and don't feel uneasy about is very tied into what your cultural norms are. Um, so, uh, wanting a hero or a heroine, um, well, it's gothic, so it always has to be a heroine, for law, um, that, that wanting her to have a set of, um, faith and, and norms and things that she finds taboo that, that people can are relatively instinctively relatable to people. Um, so that's quite fun. Um, so, so that kind of, I wanted her to be appalled at things and she needed therefore to be something that's relatively recognizable. Um, even if uh, at the end of the day, I mean, most people actually find um, Kathy's viewpoint very unrelatable because of how religious um, and how overtly religious she is. Well, that's interesting because I think if you read um, quite a lot of old style literature, um, as in literature from that time, which I have done, I think you tend to just find it very, very usual. I mean, I don't really empathize with a lot of the women from that era so I didn't really empathize with Kathy but that didn't matter because your your novel drew me in so much that it's like well it's just like being there and if I was there <laughs> I wouldn't really like them very much anyway. The heroines uh, of those kinds of books they they kind of it's all about that naivety and mm. you know reading um uh is it Camilla? Uh, the, oh yes, the other vampire one. You know, uh, yes. the other one, the Not... vampire one. Yes, <laughs> there's a really good, um, there's a really good uh, web serial based on Camilla that's recently have had their um, big movie push. Um, really recommend it. Um, modern lesbian vampires um, in love. Um, lots um, queer characters, non-binary characters, and a sort of Night Vale esque. Um, kind of weird setting it's really good okay and what's that called carmilla <laughs> it's just called it's carmilla yeah um, cool. it's, it's, it's oh and it's, it's sponsored by cotex which i i kind of find slightly adorable um but it it, it, it takes a while to get this in stride but it's a it's a modern um one's a vampire one isn't and and they it, it has all the things i want from that kind of story of reclaiming that um lesbian vampire story from 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 the gothic yeah and the victorians i only read that this year and i was absolutely blown away by it and i thought that's that's what those sorts of stories should be it's just fantastic <laughs> uh yeah. um but i mean you were talking for innocence about... <laughs> you were talking about the um you know having kathy be relatable and see to me like oh, yeah, I... Um, <laughs> that died by the wayside <laughs> no but um when it comes to like using religion and fantasy i mean you know we see a lot of these kinds of reliance on christian ideas of religion or at least western abrahamic mm. religions and i mean it is that kind of you know what a lot of people know especially you know in in sort of our reading circles i guess um but i mean it seems to me like there'd just be so much more to mine if we went a bit more weird and into the real depths of these religions and but i wonder if that's just too difficult or, or would it be too much of a barrier for readers i think there are kind of two things to unpick there um one is that i think people don't like going back to like the weirder side of um christianity or even the older side um so going to so something of an obsession of mine i, I love Christian Amarchiate, I love Hildegard of Bingen, I love Anchorites, I love kind of the, the crazy medieval um, 
faith and 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 the whole kind of fact that Christianity gained its foothold in some ways because it was um, more friendly to women than like the religion of Mithras and um, the other kind of competing faiths during the very, very early days of Christianity that women were allowed to, to preach and engaged in a lot more and it spread in their kitchens. And as it became more um, became more powerful, um, the power, you know, um, revolution are built on the backs of women. Um, they've always fought, but when they win, they get written out. And that sort of happened with Christianity. Um, but but deriving power from God is a way to circumvent um, patriarchal authority because you are you sort of it's it's like top trumps. You know, I can tell God, I can tell the king what to do because God told me so. So you know, you have these wonderful speeches from medieval, like 12th century Hildegard of Bingen, who's kind of facing off against very powerful men of her time, um, citing God as her authority. And she'd be like, No, 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 I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to talk back to you just because i'm a woman i i'm not i'm not talking i'm just a conduit of god and and that argument comes up a lot so i think there's a lot of very interesting things to mine in christianity that i'd like to see more of um and sort of like the wackier side of female saints um the beguins who you know women who didn't marry who weren't nuns who joined this religious order um and, and a way of avoiding marriage and avoiding that whole side of things. Um, a huge number of um, texts, like people, medievalists, um, had this whole thing of like women didn't write, women didn't read, women didn't make music, women didn't do, do anything. And it's like, well, actually, they did. It's all actually just religious and a sort of like very secular um, academia at the time overlooked a lot of that. And in the past couple of decades, that's being reclaimed and rediscovered and going, all these texts we have um you know that the first um the first written music um the first poems written by women a lot of that is religious and i think um it is perhaps hard as a secular or atheist feminist to um come to terms with that history or rediscovering those voices and i think that was part of my own journey of um relating to women of the past that way because a lot of them found solace in something that i don't personally find solace in but um, that's quite interesting what you were saying about um, women being allowed to preach and um, that more and more texts are being dug out. Because certainly from my experience of reading fantasy, Christian writing, whatever, it's the women are very, very much um, made seem submissive, are very much overlooked. But you're saying that now things are coming to the fore that actually is showing oh, like, the other way around. And, and they're not even that, like, they're not even like, oh, yes, I found this book in the bottom of, you know, um, Durham Cathedral and no one's ever read it before it's just that these texts are overlooked um so like um Marjorie Kemp uh or and Juliana Norwich who are both um getting a lot more attention now um and in the English tradition and you know Marjorie Kemp is this she's just this tour de force of personality it's an autobiography by a woman um and she she has these visions from God and she bullies basically everyone around her until they listen to her, that she has these visions and you that, that she will get this written down and this is her story and uh and 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 you will listen to her and 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 she's amazing and she tells her life story her you know her her husband and her widow her children's and and it, it's it, it's wonderful this book and um and it, it's also kind of hard to read because you know it's it is a medieval text but uh, but we don't get that from from kind of Christian derivations very much in sort of the standardized um, um, 
the sort of the one god stuff and i mean some of it's 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 due with um because it's 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 using uh, fantasy christianity to to critique the christianity of today which a lot of people um have found oppressive and sexist in various ways and, and that that conversation is happening and it's not having a conversation with you know um christianity of the middle ages um um so so that's i mean i'm not saying it's bad just it, it's doing a different thing but do you think if we found more fantasy writers who were writing more sort of um, religions or particularly about Christianity, the way you were describing with the, the kick-ass women and kind of going, no, I'm speaking for God and all this kind of stuff. Do you think people would start questioning these new texts and going looking for them? Or do you think they just go, oh, it's just fantasy, they're just making it up? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope people read the author's notes and and go look things up. Um, I'm, but I, I, it, it's what people find plausible is very rooted in in how prejudiced they are um so um, i mean the, the entire conversation of whether or not they're people of color in medieval europe and whether or not there should be people of color in fantasy is mm. is very rooted in that and i think that's quite possibly the same like just an extension of that same conversation um hildegard of bingen fun fact um also like seen as like the, one of the founders of german natural science um also religious, very religious woman. Um, also one of the first composers. Like you know, there are a lot of milestones in um, in women of the cloth, and and I'd, I'd like people to talk about them more. I suppose they, they they're cool. Yeah, well, it's just like when you uh, talk about the the Bayer tapestry. You know, that was done by these you know nuns, and you know, yeah, it's incredible <laughs> the work that they did. Um, but but it sort of it, it but it killed um, the bell house. She's kind of focused very much on that kind of martial conquest context mm. rather than um, sort of sort of production context. Um, even like when we talk about how it's made, it's it's almost done passively in the passive tense without saying who made it. Um, so that kind of happens. So when we say history is written by the victors and the men, we're excluding the bear tapestry, which was pretty much all the women's work then. Well, exactly. There's a lot of women who who did also did work in um, um, writing in terms of um, scriptorum work. Uh, uh, anchorites did a lot of writing, for example. And I mean, um, the Alexiad, um, Anacom, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember her name. Um, but um, there, there there were histories written by monastic women as well. But you don't, you, they, they just don't get very much playtime because of academia's inherent kind of tradition and sexism. Um, so history, if we, history is more, both more sexist and less sexist than you think, I think is how you should <laughs> often put it. <laughs> Which is actually, you know, with the, the whole writing thing, it's one of the reasons I love the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. Because oh, of, yes, I did yeah, love that. Because you have the, the kind of the flip side of that, whereas it's only the women are the academics, only the women know how to read and write. And yeah, I love that. <laughs> It's a strong theme in Hild. Um, uh, it's it's a recent um, sort of uh, sort of historical novel about Hild, you know, of the North, Saint Hild. For the, uh, for our listeners, I should say that both um, Jeanette and I went to Durham, and I was actually at Hild Bead College. Exactly. So uh, I, I am well versed in the uh, in the. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's a novel about her that's just sort of come out recently-ish. It's quite good. It's got this beautiful green cover. Um, it's on my to-read list. I've, uh, people have like shoved it at me repeatedly. <laughs> Stormlight, yes. Um, I think the term I like is alternate patriarchies. 
Okay. Um, you attack the idea that the patriarchy as it is now is permanent by showing that there are different ones, that 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 it is not eternal, and and that I find that empowering when you see a a different configuration of how it works. That power is still terrible, but and you know, uh, but like just just um, seeing a setting in which uh, women are told they can't multitask and men are told they can, for example, that sort of thing, kind of attacking the idea that our our constants are constant, which which incidentally is 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 an idea that's some um, quite common in uh, South Asia, that men are the multitaskers. So and they have basically uh, exactly the same conversation as like you know people who think women are multitaskers. It's identical, except they've just flipped it. And it's just as stupid. <laughs> I think that's definitely a really good way of approaching, you know, challenging, um, you know, a, inherited stereotypes, which we're still dealing with. I mean, most one of the main reasons we kind of set up this podcast and, and ha- having these discussions is, uh, in, you know, a, a, a kickback against the fact that these things are still cropping up in, in like, modern literature, and especially in a genre that's meant to be progressive, that, you know, it's we're still coming up against stereotypes. So I think it's um it's definitely a, a good way and maybe a more kind of subtle and easier way to, than, than just kind of blazing in there and saying I'm going to turn this patriarchy into a matriarchy actually just you know picking away at those stereotypes flipping them on their heads and just showing how quite ridiculous they really are I think it's the non-universality of modern western thinking which I think is is what I find very fascinating of being able to go no this thing now which draws its power from being eternal from being ancient from being ubiquitous it is none of those things, and I think that is that is why it's powerful to me. Um, and not to say the all guns blazing, um, you know, we will we will flip this patriarchy narrative isn't also very empowering. But I, I, I yeah, I think that's that's sort of. I remember one of a nine worlds talk went to a while back where um, where a black woman talked very eloquently about um, sort of. Um, West African histories and women in those cultures and how uh, they they are patriarchal, um, but the the way it works and the way it is talked about and the, the the spaces women inhabit is different and how she wanted to see more of that because um, she wanted to see you know well that term alternate patriarchy is um, um, and then even like say the way. Um, say, you know, Chinese court dramas are also, you know, create these sexist spaces, but they are very different because they have this different baggage of stereotypes than um, sort of the Western fantasy tradition. So, and you could see commonalities and similarities um, in the roles women can inhabit, but also very different ones. Um, I started watching Nirvana and Fire recently, and that has... Uh, without comment, a a woman who's called um, they they translate her title as princess, but it's really it's an oddity because princess um, in Chinese sort of the, the, the analog title is literally um, the master of the palace, um, but she is master of the the army. So I, I think you could maybe translate her as like princess general, or even just because it is an implicitly feminine title in some ways, but without mentioning gender it's, it's it's a very odd title um and she's in charge of the army and um her dowry is the army and this this presents many problems and she has this kind of martial um contest for her husband and um but but her power is is weirdly unquestioned is 
it is completely unquestioned by the narrative um, in a way that if I feel like if it was like a Western fantasy novel, we'd have to start with her, you know, airwinning it up. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but this starts with her at the height of her military career where, um, where some of the men of the setting are sitting there going, you know, the, the, the court of the politics that we engage with is meaningless because she's out there doing our fighting for us. And we're trying to decide who she, she has to marry. This is ridiculous. Um, and it's really odd because it it is definitely not a non-patriarchal, non-sexist setting, but they, they are saying these things which almost seem alien because I've never seen it before. And that's... Hear, hear the clock start. Um, and then that, that, <laughs> that I found really interesting. And I, I don't... I don't. I, I think that there is mileage there to, to explore. So, I mean, we've talked that there are obviously masses of <laughs> bits of religion that we don't really understand and... and loads of obscure facets which have provided a rich source of inspiration for you and other writers i mean how did you deal with incorporating difficult or unusual theology um into your novel when the majority of readers probably won't be familiar with the source material and the fact that women did preach and did kick ass i mean have you had anybody kind of come up to you and go well you know didn't really ring true for me not really um i've had um i think in some ways because the book is a little difficult to read it's sort of self-selected it's right it's it's readers um, <laughs> um, which which so I've, I've not really had very much pushback in that regard i was just gonna say do you think you get away with a bit more because it is fantasy because you could say oh well you know if you're not familiar with that but you know it, it's also fantasy i just i made that bit up but that bit's real but that you know <laughs> this bit is, is just a bit of exaggeration <laughs> I've had I've had some people kind of talk to me about um, like talk well this in the reviews um, mentioned that they, there's a lot of a lot of the religious concepts I'm not familiar with um, and some of them decided well actually no I'm just going to go Google all of this and have you know emerged a Victorian theologian um, as the, in, as part of the process in a sort of what do I even do with my life now kind <laughs> of way um, uh, what do I do with all this kind of extra things I know. Um, and I, I found that very endearing. I, I come from the sort of school of people who love explaining to each other things to each other because we love the sound of our voices. Um, my partner and I just kind of love explaining things we already know to each other because we just like stories, so we sort of like retelling. And I try to bring some of that into the way um, the characters and under the pendulums and talk that they not in a as you know Bob sort of exposition way, but just because when you are familiar with someone you you sometimes just like hearing their voice and you like hearing their arguments through and you build from base principles and all that that kind of tradition of talking so they they kind of say things to each other that i hope can imply stuff and i, I sneak a lot of stuff in through the um the little bits of um the epigraphs of every chapter where um where where we kind of bring in so i, I kind of quote um bits of relevant um, scripture in some of them as well to kind of in case you don't remember there's this bit in um, you know Song of Solomon that's really creepy um, bet you don't remember that bit kind of way um, and I didn't those I didn't make up or modify whereas um, the the Victorian missionary manuals ones I had a lot of fun just ripping actual Victorian missionary manuals and changing like two or three words <laughs> Um, so, so there's, a, there's several passages that kind of describe Fei, which are ripped straight from descriptions of the Chinese. 
That's interesting. Um, <laughs> that is, yeah. Um, so there's a passage where um, there's a passage where b- very specifically, I it was the the spark of the novel, which is the bit where it sort of talks about um, that the Chinese they you know they they have two eyes, you know, two arms, two legs, you know, a nose and a mouth, like you know all the all the things you'd expect from a human being. Um, and I can't remember the exact phrasing of it, but they really struck me as though they were expecting something else. Um, and it sounded so alien. I just took that and just changed a couple of words, mainly Chinese to fairies. And then, and that, that was that, that went into the book. So, I mean, skipping ahead a bit and going away from the theology a bit, but I mean, what, what sources did you draw on for your depiction of the Fae? I mean, why did you want to mix ideas of, of the Fae with more traditionally Western religious ideas? Was it, it was obviously born of this passage, but was, how did your mindset go on after that? Um, I, it was sort of, a, a lot of the depictions of Fae come from the idea that we have multiple versions of Fae in, in sort of popular fantasy. We have kind of fairies as, um, you know, fairies we give to little girls with the wands and the wish-granting, the Victorian twee fairies. We have the very graceful ancient gods being um, hidden away fairies. We have, um, but sort of the the, the fairies, um, as they more are in, in pen, under the pendulum zone, is slightly medieval in that context, because there's a lot of desire to reincorporate folklore and make sense of it in a Christian context um, during the Middle Ages. Um and so some of that comes from that recontextualization of trying to take these, you know, pagan stories and force them into a Christian context. Um, and like, how does it fit? Um, and you know, the very like details, like how um, uh, Grendel from Beowulf, for example, is you know a descendant of Cain, for, for example. Um, so that that's that sort of trying to retcon um, retroactive continuity. Um, uh, pagan elements into Christianity. Um, so some of it comes from that. And I, I read a lot of that um, in the context of um, my degree, because um, the Old Norse, of course, um, the tradition has lots of that. Snorri, for example, tries to justify the deeds of the gods as um, deeds of long lost kings. Uh, but, you know, some of it's just to, just to be weird. Some of it is semi-allegorical so the idea of the world being mechanical is kind of very based on um taking literally models of the universe as espoused by kind of victorian scientists so um they were very into making models of things making um kind of giant clocks called stuff like the microcosm and and taking those ideas and trying to make them literal um seeing the world as a a mechanical box that runs that way and it's like well that'd be cool let's let's make a world that literally is like that let's um um the sun being a pendulum i think i stole from a, a belgium rpg called mechanical dream though so <laughs> there you go um well it's it's um because of sort of the very strong religious themes a lot of it does tie back into that idea those ideas of of um, sort of tying tying everything together and and making and making it metaphorically work that way. So one of the the big themes of the novel is how um, allegory predicates on a certain understanding of the world. Um, that, for example, if you say um, you know go be the fisher of men, or that uh, that you know uh, the the seeds of faith or whatever, but in fairyland 
uh, all these natural world metaphors break down because nothing works the way you expect it to. So if sunlight, if seeds, if um, fishes don't work the way you think they should, then how can you explain to them your parables stop making sense? So, I mean, we've obviously talked about um, Snorri and the Norse gods and RPG religions, um, (laughs) Christianity and things like that. So you've obviously studied and considered religions quite a lot. So do you find any of them in particular offers a really great scope for fantastical tales, either that you've drawn on in Under the Pendulum Sun or that you've kind of gone, yeah, I might note that one down for a future novel? (laughs) Um, I'm a huge fan of, um, of kind of really early Christian um sort of alternate christianities i suppose in the sense of like um i find early conversation about the trinity very fascinating um and manichaeism is 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 really cool um because it's very dualist um which kind of makes it into some versions of christianity but the kind of very dualist idea of there is this god of darkness and this god of light and they're equally powerful pitched in this eternal fight against each other which I suppose in some ways is like is in a lot of fantasy, but kind of trying to make that more explicit and play with that with manichaeism is very fun, um, in my mind at least. Um, um, there's a lot of stuff in Orthodox Christianity that we don't see a lot of e- as well, because um, when we say Abrahamic, we don't really mean Abrahamic um, in many ways. Um, so um, there's some... Um, um, and Tekla, Tekla, um, you know, she of um, she who could call down lightning um, to strike down man-eating seals. Um, she is only a, a saint in in the orthodox um, in the orthodox tradition, and she is brilliant. Um, I believe she stalked Paul until he converted her, um, <laughs> or, or rather, he converted her because she heard him, and then she stalked him until um, he baptized her. It's it's this hilarious story um very very assertive um but on the other hand i think that we we want to palette swap things we we make assumptions of what faith should look like based on um our understanding of christianity because that's what religion looks like and this bleeds a lot into into faiths that uh, are not meant to be christian um and and i have very mixed feelings about that because on one hand you could it means you could palette swap Christianity to comment on Christianity and modern Christianity at that, but it also can be quite limiting. Um, and and this this isn't you know kind of um, isn't just kind of fantasy literature that does this. It kind of comes in from our understanding of kind of very sort of comparative religion type studies, where you know um, if you took religious studies gcse or whatever you'd, you'd get this chart where it would go you know name, you know, faith, name of faith how many people are in it what their holy symbol is what their tenants are what their religious book is and it presupposes that every religion has a holy symbol a religious book um a religious holiday um because people are looking for cognates to the bible to um to the cross and so forth. And, you know, you, you would read in from those charts and be like, oh, yes, so Buddhism's really into the Om symbol. And you're like, well, yes, because people are, you know, Buddhists are going around wearing Om symbols all the time. That's that's their, their well-known famous symbol. Um, and, and, it, and that framework copes very poorly with the idea of religions that don't have religious texts or even better have religious texts, but those texts aren't important um, because you don't have that same religion, that the same relationship with 
the written texts mm. that it is not a religion of the book um so it it it's, it, it struggles with um and, and and you don't have to look very far where you know where understanding of uh, where you're trying to write an understanding of, of sort of pre-christian um faith of trying to you know relationships with say the edda um are not like relationships with the bible um because you have this very different concept of the gods of of who they are to you and how um, you know, gods who you bargain with, for example, rather than worship, gods who are your friends, gods who are your ancestors, mm. um, or even kind of just playing with old Buddhism who who kind of have gods but also kind of don't. See, I um, want to see more of sort of the, the Old Testament god who, you know, would just ask someone to kill their own son just as a test of faith. Like, psych! <laughs> um, you know, like... <laughs> Oh, the the kind of the, the vengeful, just kind of mean for the no real reason. I want to see more of that. <laughs> but maybe I like just it cruel. Very black and white, then Megan. <laughs> I just think it's interesting because you know you you get a lot of kind of uh, as Jeanette's saying more of the kind of what we think of as <clears throat> sorry as modern kind of Christianity. Um, where you kind of you worship the gods or you you look to the gods for for hope and for comfort um you know but what about the gods where you feared them and they like you know supposedly came down and interfered in your life and you had to do things because the god said do this terrible oh. thing and you know it was either do this terrible thing or die Odyssey or was amazing mm -hmm. um, yeah Back in the day, we um, played Odyssey, the live role-play game um, um, run by Profound Decisions, UK um, pr uh, live role-plays where you dress up and you pretend to be people. Um, and one of the great things it did was um, the gods were played by people, but they were they had this tent, which which is you know, the home of the gods, and you would go there for an audience, and the gods would just scream at you utterly. Um, it was and the priests were the only people who can go in to talk to the gods so it was a very literal here are the priests and they will go away to a place and talk to the gods and come back and tell you what they said relationship and it was amazing um, because the gods were completely unreasonable and some of them were reasonable but you, you wouldn't know because the priests would then conspire with each other and say okay so we want to get this done so we're going to say god said it and all that <laughs> stuff happened and it was beautiful and and just the sort of language where, um, so um, Carthage was one of the cultures. So you had um, the Carthaginian gods in a sort of almost Lovecraftian sense because we had Dagon and um, Tanit and so forth. And they were very nasty and very demanding because grandfather, you know, takes a third of everything that all your cargo um, so they would have to before they came out every time they went into a priest or like an audience with Dagon they would have to come out and kill a third of their priests um, after a while they knew that they should just bring a load of slaves in um, um, and kill them instead and things like that they just sort of emergence because of of the way the rules of that game were written, the way it kind of simulates the world, it creates these dynamics of power um, and uh, and ways you can abuse that power, which people rise to. Um, it, was, it was really fun, that game, for that. By the end uh, of the game, we really wanted to murder all the gods. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> well, not really, but we, we really wanted to. They were really horrid. The um the idea of the irrational god, I mean, that's been picked up mostly by um, pantheistic religions because you've yes. got the you know all, all of the the Greek 
so many stories of Greek mythology where you you know and Zeus interfering in humankind and um you know impregnating poor innocent women and then the, the, them kind of playing with each other and making humans the playthings of the gods and actually the gods end up being more like spoiled children um oh, wow. spoiling for a fight. <laughs> Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, um, NKJ series, um, NK Jemison series does some very interesting theology with sort of um, uh, enslaved gods, a sort of powerful, petulant, more human than human enslaved gods. Um, it's, it's, um, Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. That's and it has again, it's on my reading list. Yeah, yeah I've heard <laughs> so many really, things about it. <laughs> We're just kind of taking a sidestep from what Lucy was saying there, that um, she's quite right that uh, there's a very common religious trope within fantasy of polytheism. But many of these polytheistic deities tend to intervene actively within the world that they're governing. So that while they are deities, their existence is sort of a, a proven fact um, in the realm of their world compared to, say, Christianity and, and Jeanette's book, where it's all about God and is it real? You know, will this really damn my soul? Will this really save it? So why do you think the, the proven fact um, mechanism is so popular in fantasy? Is it because it just adds so much more dynamics, like Megan was saying, that it's basically, it really is very, very personal. It's not vague at all. It's the great threat of if you do not do this thing, that bloke standing over there watching you with a great big thunderbolt is going to do something very nasty. Or just, to, I think it's also kind of a lot of people writing that come from reading Greek mythology and um, Greek come come from reading, you know, Iliad and where where you have very active gods um, and very active relationship with the gods. I think, I mean, it, it's as much to do with the, the texts we're inspired by as anything else, and and the tradition um, there is of gods who work the earth and talk to their followers and intervene in very physical and literal ways, like the idea that Odin literally picks who wins each battle. Um, and you know that this this kind of isn't just in kind of modern fantasy. So like the Ring saga has Odin sitting around going, "Oh, maybe that guy should die," as one of its big plots. So I think it bleeds in from that, where we're we're working from these templates in polytheism that 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 the templates are of these. And I suppose D and D has a lot to answer for as well, um, <laughs> conceptualizing of how gods work. Um, so it's just really really powerful people. Well, yeah. I often wondered if it was because of the idea that if you're your hero is only as good as your enemy is bad and powerful. So if you've Ooh. kind of got someone like Hercules, who mm. is your average, well, not he's not your average human. I mean, he's blessed <laughs> by the gods. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but he has, he has gifts from the gods, but he kind of takes those gifts and makes them his own. But he's always mm. pitted against the gods. And the idea is that they pit him against individual mortals all the way through, or, or you know, the horses of Diomedes, something sort of um, extra, not extra, sorry, supernatural. Um, and each time he's pitted about something bigger and bigger and bigger until he's at Cerberus at the end, you kind of go, actually, that makes him a better hero because he's not just fighting against the other, um, the other guys and the other warriors, like, mm. um, who is it? Uh, Achilles at, um, in the Trojan War. He's kind of up against the gods and, and there is nothing more powerful within that world than there is the gods. So I wonder if one of the, things that people tend to like about um these polytheistic deity systems is that mm. because you can interact you get your hero is even more awesome because he's kicking the ass of the gods but it does yeah. then of course leave you a problem with your sequel if he's kicking the ass of the gods in in book one where is he going to go in book two because you then have nothing higher the god of war video game has that problem repeatedly um so because i think he just literally murders all the gods in it <laughs> 
which, which you know takes that kind of challenge and God's thing to a logical conclusion um, in a way that I think uh, more kind of conventional fantasy movies don't dare because they they sort of almost superimpose um, uh, the sort of recent class of Titans clash of titans movies yes um, yeah where where they almost have an atheistic take of being very anti-zeus um but then it he turns around and makes up with zeus and and everything's all right again like that there's this weird kind of compromise version of um classical mythology where hades is the bad guy because you know he's ruler of the underworld so he's obviously satan um and zeus is the good guy because he lives in the sky and he's kind of gets a bit abrahamic and gets a big beard and is very fatherly to people which i find very interesting as a way as that kind of bleed in yes especially when you go back and read the stories and go actually zeus is a total arsehole yeah and then hades is i mean he's not great but no he doesn't do very much yeah his rap sheet is shorter let's just go for that shorter (laughs) rap list So, I mean, another trope we see a lot of in fantasy books is the old gods versus the new singular god of light. Um, I mean, uh, George R. R. Martin is a, is a perfect example, but it's been done in, in many, many books. Marin Zimmer Bradley I was going to name, but, you know, no one should read that book now because Marin Zimmer Bradley is a terrible person. Um, but um, that was when I first encountered it in Mists of Avalon. I was going to say, wasn't her books just terrible in general? That was my general feeling about Marin Zimmer Bradley. Irrelevant. <laughs> many personal things, her books were just dire. Oh, I, I remember when I was a teenager and she kind of, um, so back when I had no taste, but also that kind of, um, the idea of the the kind of matriarchal goddess faith versus the incoming god of light and monotheism, um, and the idea that at the end, um, the goddess kind of goes into it is kind of the, the worship of the goddess continues at the abbey as the Virgin Mary and that, that the legacy of that. I, I remember I, I found that very interesting. Um, and then the reconstruction of, of paganism, um, Ronald Hutton is an excellent person to read about that, where so that the invention of modern paganism in kind of Ghanaianism and, and all that, um, where there's this desire to look for ancient roots um, and enshrine um, modern well, modernish at the time, kind of hippie liberal values into an, an ancient context. What do you um, think? It's a very British thing because obviously, in particularly in Britain, it's very noticeable that you have the the pagan heritage has sort of been overtaken by Christianity. I mean, to a certain extent, if you look at Bath, which is um, mm. sorry Bath, if I was you know below the border, um, <laughs> oh, sorry, we had this argument the other day. Um, the place Bath. Uh, it used to be um, Sulis. It had the goddess Sulis. Yeah. And then you had Aquae Sulis, which then was the Roman version, kind of coming along yeah. and going, oh, well, you already have this goddess. And look, we have quite a similar one. So why don't we put the names together and we'll all worship the same person and it'll all kind of be your god and my god and that'll be fine. But the Christians didn't do so much of that. A bit like the Victorians, they just kind of massively swept through and went, no, we're going to get rid of all of the original ones. So do you but think in British... people like, you know, St. Bridget, who who seems very much like she's a you know, a, a foul off the serial numbers version of a, of a god as well. So there is some kind of incorporating around the edges. Well, I must admit, I mean, I, I'm totally open to any of our listeners getting in touch and correcting me, but my feeling mm. when I've read um, mythology, British mythology, folklore and Christianity is that it, the Christians kind of put their ideas there 
And then almost the the fairies and the folklore went underground and they were still there. And if they were twisted around, it was done by the common people or by very, very smart preachers rather than Mm -hmm. Christianity as a whole, because they just Christianity tended to go certainly previously very much nope nope not having any of that that's absolutely not rather than doing what the romans did which was kind of incorporating and going well actually you know this this is kind of similar we'll just kind of amalgamate it well um, they did base their um holy festivals kind of around the pagan ones that already existed though which was quite clever in a way um to try and kind of get people to feel as if nothing was really changing i mean midwinter festival has been mm-hmm. around an awful lot longer than Christmas the idea of Christmas but they really are the same and when we do exactly the same we hoard food and stuff ourselves stupid uh, to weather the coming cold months um, so that's quite that's quite similar um, there's a, a couple of um, more than a couple actually it's a long series by Juliette Marillier it starts with Daughter of the Forest yes. Um, which I really enjoyed Um, I read them quite a long time ago but I can still see them here on my shelf Um, and yeah I really enjoyed that series because it's about set in Ireland and it's exactly about what we're discussing now the um, kind of intrusion of Christianity Mm. into the kind of the the, um, accepted Irish uh, pagan religion and that incorporates kind of ideas of the fae but they're not overtly referred to as the fae they're like Mm. you know deirdre the lady of the sorrows and she is obviously of the other world um but those are really interesting and i think the way that she uh, that uh juliet kind of uh, the whole whole thing is that it's it's really really they're good books for um anyone who we we use the word phrase like kick-ass women all the time which i'm really trying not to (laughs) use so much yeah um but they're all women's stories and i think they show women in huge um well, in, in great times of peril and stress and horror and things that have been that you know they've um they're either being forced into marriages or they're coming up against um divisions within their family um but they they all show women in um you know strong positions or how how women have fought back within um a structure within a structured environment and then the kind of whole idea of christianity and paganism and having this kind of much greater fight is is like a metaphor for everything that's going on in this is huge family of like seven waters so i think she's a really good one to read if you want um example of that era and um you know of a wide yeah. variety of women being great at being women <laughs> um syncretism syncretism is amazing um i think you see a bit more of it in some of the more recently converted places um in the sense that um <clears throat> when when missionary work was happening in um, Southeast Asia and China in particular, the question of whether or not Confucian rituals of honouring your ancestors count as ancestor worship and therefore religious um, was a huge debate and it went all the way up to the Pope um, to resolve. Um, And there were papal bulls about this, about whether or not a good Christian should engage in ancestor respect rituals if that's worshipping the ancestor and therefore idolatry or it isn't. Um, and um, and in the end they came down to at first it was allowed and then it wasn't and it was this huge controversy and it's fascinating to see because of these points of syncretism and um, tolerance and sort of incorporating into it um, and and it, it's very common for example to see the idea that the Virgin Mary is Quan Yin for example who is our goddess of mercy and a bodhisattva but that kind of thing where you're looking for these points of similarity and, and the stories kind of bleeding through. Um, 
um, because the Virgin Mary is also this figure who shows up full of compassion for people and and shows up in disguise and helps you. Um, um, so so I do think that that still happens, but it's a lot. It's sometimes harder to see those points when um, when something happened. Kind of basically, it's older. <laughs> There's less of a written record of the conversion time, like the, you know the the, the convert era. But, you know, you have early, um, so from the Norse tradition going right back, you have plenty of stories where, you know, um, of mortal heroes called some derivation of Thor, for example, who who start off pagan and they're redhead and basically they're just Thor, but instead they're called Thorkel. And they're this great, awesome hero and he's great and he does all these great things. And at the end of the story, he encounters Christianity and converts the end. <laughs> And I always kind of love them as kind of examples of trying to reincorporate or or rehabilitate these these pagan stories into a Christian context. So you can just keep telling them. Odin Odin is significantly more sinister and kind of ends up in a more like a deathly folkloric um, satanic figure. I mean, he's a lot meaner in a lot of stories. Um, but that kind of I, mean, I suppose it's a thing that comes in American gods kind of plays about with it a lot. So I'm going to open up my last question to everybody because it seems like we've all got very different ideas and very different <laughs> tastes. So what other religious ideas would you like to see represented in fantasy? So we've had the um, polytheistic deities. We've had a sort of a um, monotheistic religion where women are quite subservient, which, as Jeanette has kindly pointed out, is absolutely wrong. And people should go away and read the source material and find out that women did actually kick ass and that men listened to them. But what does everybody think? We'll start obviously with Jeanette as our guest. What kind of um, religious ideas would you like to see in fantasy going forward? I'd love to see uh, a break, uh, breaking down of the idea of what, where the lines between magic and um, science and religion lie, because I think that um, the modern conceptions of them as being very distinct and separate and compartmentalised is... Um, is, is quite modern and and I want to see and, and and quite Christian because once you've kind of defined this is this is Christianity this is this old pagan stuff is magic sort of that th those lines are drawn and that those lines aren't necessarily drawn and inherent in other cultures like Egyptian doesn't so you know their priests are magicians for example and their magic is divine um, and 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 you will you know see RPG settings or books that kind of conceptualizes it still having a priest class and a, a magic user class because because that's that's how we think of things. There are mages and there are priests or clerics, I suppose. Um, and, and these two things never mix because magic is always at war with religion, which is always at war with science. And I think breaking down some of those categories and seeing them remixed would be really really cool. What she what? said. <laughs> you're not allowed to steal that answer <laughs> megan do you do you stand by what you say earlier that you drop you want to see kind of more more of the gods coming down and being really really vicious and kind of go right if you don't do this this is going to happen i guess i quite like the idea of fear <laughs> you know which sounds terrible it makes me sound awful but you know uh, um sort of a, a lot of religion um contemporary religion it, you know it it's something to turn to for hope and for explanations of you know and, and religion originally even came about you know to explain the world around you um but i quite like the idea of of looking at you know these religious figures as something to fear so <laughs> you know maybe we don't need police because everyone you know we've we've got this god who will just 
slaughter anyone who misbehaves or <laughs> I, I will i'd like to see bargaining gods as well if we're talking like relationships with gods that differ like mm. ones where you, you bargain with them and say well i'll give you sacrifices um and um on this day and 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 you will you will give me blessings on this other day which which to be fair like um certain branches of christianity still kind of sort of practice um sort of the prosperity gospel type stuff but which is terrible but um but kind of talking about it in the fantasy context and um these relationships with gods which is much more kind of bargaining based and a lot more um you deal with them like another person i think would be really cool yeah there's um i mean it's it's not fantasy uh but in terms of science fiction looking at gods uh, i always really liked um the original series episode um i think it's who mourns for adonai it's mm. it's where they um encounter these aliens who suppose Megan honey yeah original series of what star trek Sorry, uh. did I not say that? Original series of <laughs> no. Star Trek. Sorry, I'm in my brain. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but yeah, there's these aliens who are supposedly they were the gods of the the Greek myths, and the idea being that the aliens they basically survive off or, or feed oh. off the the worship of the people, <clears throat> you know, oh. the humans. Um, and I always love aliens. Kind of thing. Yeah, which I guess is also oh, Stargate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, Chariot of the Gods, you know, we blame for it. The the book, Chariot of the Gods, which kind of started the whole um, it, the gods are secretly aliens theory, um, which are which is both kind of really fun for sci-fi and fantasy to explore, but also is predicated on a number of assumptions about ancient cultures, especially ancient non-white cultures that are problematic. <laughs> Let's just go with problematic. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the very unco- like there. It's the problem with conspiracy theories that they yeah. they seem so much fun on the surface and ah, I I, I love them to bits because they're just so crazy and they yeah. they explain. Yeah. But they're they're created to explain things and the things they're seeking to explain. The more you think about, the more you think ah, you assume these things because ah, I see you want there to be. You know, you you want there to have been a medieval person to have, a Vikings to have gone into the, um into the heart of America because that justifies settler colonialism and stuff like that. It's just, it's so cool that it's, it's so cool and batshit insane that you think that the Minoans made it to the great lakes to mine for copper. And that would make great alt history. But I see that you think that because you think that the people there are incapable of mining for copper, that it has to be the Minoans. It's, it's that, and I find kind of taking inspiration from it kind of very difficult because it's both so cool in a sort of these are batshit crazy ideas kind of way, yeah. but also kind of, oh, well, actually, it perpetuates these ideas that are very uncomfortable and predicated on certain assumptions and certain worldviews. And they're only plausible in certain assumptions mm-hmm. and certain worldviews. So um, so we're in general agreement. That that- a downer. <laughs> <laughs> So we're in general agreement that aliens as gods is okay, so long as we deal with it a bit better than, say, original Star Trek, which had, <laughs> had its moments of brilliance, but also had its moments of just, oh, no. <laughs> I love it. I love original Star Trek. Come on. It is very um, cool. What would be, actually, when, Jeanette, when you were talking then, it, it would be interesting to kind of, you know, obviously with, with kind of religions that we know in our world, 
you know, it, it did, you know, as we've, we've mentioned, it came about to explain the world around us and explain phenomenon. So it would be interesting to see in a fantasy world a religion that kind of had roots in something else. I don't know what it would be, but that would be interesting. Um, well, even like, well, I think um, uh, Shivam on Twitter, he's some Hindu priest who, who talked very recently about how um, the Last Jedi was the most finely kind of reaches the kind of um, Buddhist um, like philosophy level that he was he was really he he thought was potential in the set in the series and setting, but you know didn't see until then and 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 that it lined very deeply with his faith, which I found fascinating. Well, Megan, it's interesting you should talk about wanting religions to be something different. Um, in creating the current novel that I'm working on, I researched into quite a few world religions. And the thing that I found was that all their creation myths are pretty much the same. And all of their ideas about how death in particular, which, because, you know, I have a fun life, I researched into death and death customs quite a lot as well. Um, all of the ideas of death were, were quite similar as well. There was always a transgression that humankind made that resulted in them having to die and having you know having to deal with death so it might be something as simple as shouting at one of the gods or it could be disobeying them or it could be anything so I like what you're saying about the idea of well you know it'd be great to get away from these original ideas but at the same time that's pretty much what every single world religion is built on it's built at looking at what we don't understand or more rather what people didn't understand back then and then creating something to explain it the question yeah. of how universal our human universals is always an interesting like an exciting one we could have a whole episode on it <laughs> yes well um um but as in like how certain things we we take as whether or not like you know how, how the conceptualization of death for example and 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 how and and, and you're, you're saying that it, it is quite universal and therefore coming up with an alternate version of that may not sound may not ring true an alternate explanation of death. Well, what I'm saying is that they are, it's, there are massively different versions. So for example, if you will excuse me, and if Megan doesn't edit this out, um, <laughs> there was one where there's a young girl and her grandmother um, down washing, doing the washing down by the, by the river. And the old lady takes off her skin and becomes a beautiful young woman. And her granddaughter comes along and goes, who are you? She's like, I'm your grandmother. And she's like, no, you're not. My grandmother looks very different to that. And she's like, no, no, seriously, I am. And the girl refused to believe her. And so the woman put her suit back on. Um, and because some god was particularly offended by this, they decreed that therefore um, they should never ever, people, sorry, people couldn't shed their skins anymore, but things like snakes mm. could and so gained immortality and things like that. But there was another one, and I'd have to go back through my notes, but basically involving a coyote um, tricking a spider or stuff like that and that it's all very different with very different characters and very different situations but the ultimate ideas are very much the same so creation myths often involved a void to begin with and then an egg or something like that that would then produce the gods the father of the god well usually it wasn't the gods that ultimately you prayed to it was some uber gods like Gaia or um oh the great oh. ones escape me Kronos but, but we have but, but we have we have we also have like Ra spunking into his own mouth and snowballing himself. <laughs> but, but wasn't there yeah, a the, the castration myths. 
But but Ra um, was was again. He was almost a secondary god, from what I recall. And I appreciate who I'm going up against when I argue this point. Um, and you know that I haven't got my notes in front of me. But again, it, I'm pretty sure that that was the case. But he would have been in a void beforehand. It's all coming back down to this this single idea. And again, it's so many different stories. But the basic idea of transgression, or just an ultimate creator deity going, well, I'm going to create something, whether that's by eating my own children or spunking into my own mouth it's it's all it might be a different method but it's all the same idea at the end of the day and with the same result in conclusion people are weird <laughs> no, no. conclusion miss handsome we still haven't had your answer of what religious ideas you'd like to see represented in fancy and stealing Jeanette's is definitely not allowed no, no. you've got loads of material <laughs> i'm not i'm not a big one for religion so um probably not a good person to ask really i find it all absolutely fascinating i was gonna say the reason i've kept mostly quiet during this whole thing is because i mean utterly fascinated it's really interesting everything you've been saying jeanette so thanks for coming along and educating me i've I've broadened my horizons one more side point which i'm sure you can also cut but is that I find really interesting how um, certain institutions that grew up around religion, especially in kind of Western culture, like things like scriptoriums and um, kind of um, schools to teach children, um, kind of grew up around religion. And then we um, we replaced them kind of in a sort of secular outburst with the secular institutions. And now in our modern society, we are starting to get rid of them. Like libraries and museums are all under attack. And they were built to be these replacements for for religious things because these things are so obviously important. We should still be able to do them even if we don't like God and make them universal. And somehow once we've taken God out of it, people... Like, you know, given given a few hundred years, people have started going, well, maybe we don't need them, need them anymore. And I find that quite interesting as a modern society thought. So thank you, Jeanette, for joining us. Um, and I personally feel like I've not only enjoyed myself this evening, but also that I've learned a lot. And I think the advice we'll all be taking away from this episode is to read the author's notes and to go out and find their fascinating sources. I'd also love to give a quick shout out to Andrew Knighton, who sent Jeanette's book over to me and said, you have to read this. You'll love it. Which I think just goes to show that listening to word of mouth really does expose you to some brilliant books. Thank you for joining us, Jeanette. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening.